Hello and welcome to The Lancet Podcast. I'm Richard Lane and it's Friday, December the 21st and season's greetings to you all. Just before we go off on a bit of a break over the Christmas and New Year period, we wanted to give you a podcast, a slightly different podcast perhaps to listen to, to reflect over this holiday period as we move into 2019. Very much tied in with a recent anniversary, the 70th anniversary on December the 10th of the International Declaration of Human Rights, which was of course back in, in 1948. And The Lancet published a viewpoint co-authored by Professor Larry Gostin, who's no stranger to The Lancet over many years, and his colleagues. Larry, we're delighted to have you on the line for this seasonal reflective podcast for The Lancet. Hello, how are you? I'm fine, Richard, and it's uh, lovely to be here and uh, season's greetings to everyone uh, who's listening. Happy Christmas. And I'm actually here in the Lake District. Lucky you, the Lake District. I think one of the, if not the most beautiful uh, parts of England. We're going to discuss some of the points you picked up in your viewpoint that we published, as I said, with the anniversary on December the 10th, just a a week or so ago. But Larry, just before we start, we share something in common, uh, actually. You and I, we both have a psychology undergraduate degree. But I think that (laughs) I note... um, in your um, profile that was published three years ago in The Lancet, but that's where I think we, 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 we then diverge because you then trained as a lawyer, and of course you're well known internationally now as a lawyer in global health, and you're based over at Georgetown University in Washington, D.C. Tell us what it's like being a global health lawyer. Well, um, it's, it's very good. I mean, I, I've, I've had very senior people at the World Health Organization and ministers of health ask me, the question, you know, well, what does law have to do with public health and global health? And my answer is everything, because, you know, a doctor can save one life at a time, but a good public health lawyer that has good public and global health uh, policy uh, can save thousands, even millions of lives, as has human rights throughout the years. And so I'm the director of the World Health Organization Collaborating Center on National and Global Health Law, and uh, I uh, run the O'Neill Institute for National and Global Health Law at Georgetown University Law Center. Fantastic. And we'll come back to aspects of, of your work throughout this podcast. But just returning to the viewpoint that The Lancet published on December the 10th that you co-authored with um, some of your colleagues. Can we just very quickly look back? We, we need to look forward as well. But the past 70 years have been fascinating in terms of what is meant by this concept of human rights and particularly how that applies itself within the global health setting. Could you just quickly go through some of the landmarks in those 70 years, obviously starting with 1948? Because it's to summarize it's been a bit of a bumpy up and down ride hasn't it well it actually has and of course you know the one has to be you know begin with world war ii and human rights really arose from the terrible horrors of of world war ii and and the genocide uh, that uh, took place and the idea was that you know just because a country is sovereign doesn't mean that it um, is immune from uh, the inalienable rights of, of all human beings. And so uh, when the UN Charter was formed in 1945, human rights are one of the three pillars to that charter. Several years later, in 1948, as you've mentioned, Richard, uh, the Universal Declaration of Human Rights was adopted by the United Nations, and it was spearheaded by uh, the American uh, First Lady, Eleanor Roosevelt, the the wonderful Eleanor Roosevelt, who 
who said that uh, uh, human rights are grounded in small places close to home where every man, woman, and child seeks equal justice and dignity. And I think that's a beautiful statement of what uh, human rights are. You took the words out of my mouth. It, it's it's in your piece, in the viewpoint. And those are beautiful words. And, and she was, I know, a remarkable woman. So it's gr- good, to, good to acknowledge that. Moving through the decades, though, it's interesting, particularly with the Cold War and the politics, particularly between the US and the former Soviet Union, that basically splintered off the kind of worldview, didn't it, on, on, on human rights, and, human rights and, and also obviously how that related to health. That's exactly right, because out of the human Universal Declaration of Human Rights, social and economic rights, like the right to health or, or the right to education, had the same status as civil and political rights, like uh, free press and, and, and liberty. But the Cold War really splintered them. So by 1966, we ended up with two separate treaties. One was the International Covenant of Economic, Social, and Cultural Rights, which was all the positive rights, like the right to health, and the uh, International Covenant of Civil and Political Rights, which was all about the individual personal liberties. So that, you know, was splintered, but we began to come back together, particularly in 1978 with the World Health Organization's Declaration of Alma Ata, um, which was uh, very famously about um, primary care. And health for all, um, this slogan that came out, health for all. Yes, health for all. And in fact, you know, um, I have a, a WhatsApp conversation with Dr. Tedros, the Director General of the World Health Organization, and I love that his little symbol uh, on WhatsApp is health for all. Oh, that's fabulous. <laughs> and, and I think that's... that's so, so the Declaration of Alma-Ata is still looms very large in the way we um, think about things. From there, you know, I think the next, you know, there, there were other WHO treaties like um, uh, the World Health Organization's Framework Convention on Tobacco Control, which was adopted in 2003, which was usually successful. And then uh, in 2005, um, the revised international health regulations, which is all about you know, global pandemics, you know, for example, now in the Democratic Republic of Congo, there's an Ebola epidemic and we're fighting it using these international health regulations as a key um, strategy. The, the thing that I really wanted to emphasize, Richard, if I could, was the, the crucial role that the, that the AIDS pandemic played. That was crucial, wasn't it? The late 80s, 90s, HIV, AIDS, and how we started to see action from the bottom up, civil society. Tell us about that. It was so important. I mean, you know, many of your listeners you know, may, may have been too young to remember uh, those days, but I was there right at the beginning of the AIDS pandemic you know, with the CDC in its war room um, trying to figure out what was happening with um, the, this um, young gay men that were in, immune depressed um, and compromised in San Francisco, Los Angeles, and New York. That began AIDS, but AIDS really changed the world in, in such fundamental ways. Perhaps the most important way was this bottom-up social mobilization with you know, ACT UP in the United States or Treatment Action Campaign in South Africa that you know, demanded their human rights. 
demanded their right to health, their right to treatment, particularly when antiretrovirals were available. You know, the slogan saying, you know, the rich, you know, have a tablet that, you know, uh, saves their lives and the poor don't. What, what ended up happening was a complete neglect of AIDS at WHO, uh, the National Institutes of Health in the U.S. and so forth, to becoming the, you know, the biggest program in the history of WHO, and then AIDS becoming the biggest research enterprise uh, at the uh, National Institutes of Health in the U.S. and, and then globally. Uh, and then it, it, we ended up with the Global Fund uh, as uh, a key funder, and, and of course, UNAIDS was formed. There was huge traction, there was huge political engagement endorsed by celebrities. It became obviously very high profile. Without wishing to sound too negative, we have a problem now, don't though, don't we, in the 21st century, in that we, we, we've, we've, we seem to have lost... The, the great momentum, the grassroots, the activism that you've just described. We've now moved on to another phase where actually, if you take HIV-AIDS, there isn't the same amount of money going into it. And in some areas, HIV-AIDS is, is, is increasing. And if you, look at the, if you look at the macro situation with geopolitics and, and this anti-internationalism that seems to be upon us now, we're coming back out the other way again, are we not? It's a more nuanced picture than that, because on the one hand, we have the UN Sustainable Development Goals in 2015, um, which really underscore the right to health. Um, we have the World Health Organization and Dr. Tedros underlying that you know all paths lead to universal health coverage and also um, mainstreaming human rights throughout the uh, system of the UN. So there's been a lot of great progress, but I really do worry. I think you're right. You know, if you look at uh, President Trump in the United States and this uh, nationalism and in some ways anti-immigrant, uh, we're seeing a populist and sometimes authoritarian governments just simply not accepting human rights. You know, one sees it in so many authoritarian governments in, in, in the world, you know, from, you know, from China um, you know, through to Turkey and, and Eastern Europe, now in Brazil, where you've got a right-wing government. And it's not just a left and right politics. One understands that. It's really a, a sense of global health and human rights are, are under threat because the real foundations for human rights and global health, there's a backlash against, uh, like robust international institutions, mutual solidarity and global responsibilities, um, the rule of law, freedom of press. All of these things are, are under threat as they haven't been in so many years um, that it really is uh, deeply concerning. But I am hoping, I, I really want to be optimistic here that that we can overcome that and that human rights and uh and the right to health really will prevail in the end indeed just want to ask you um uh, just for a moment about your country the united states because clearly if there's one country that has a, an unusual health system and, and a problematic health system. Um, the United States is one because of the amount of GDP it spends on health, but also the fact that millions of Americans are 
are uninsured still. And now there's this problem with down in Texas with people trying to fight the constitutionality of the, of the Affordable Care Act. I don't want to go into all the massive detail of that, but just um, if you take America which is a fabulous country that I love visiting and I have friends there, I've been many, many times. I still struggle conceptually with a country like America because actually in America, you don't have a right to health, do you? Particularly if you are not old and not very poor or disabled because actually health care then is something, it's an employment benefit, not, not a right. Yes, you know, the United States reminds me of, of uh, Charles Dickens' saying, you know, we, we, we have the best and we have the worst. Yeah, the best of um, times and the worst of times. Yeah, <laughs> indeed. What they call Obamacare, the Affordable Health Act, um, really was intended to uh, expand uh, health insurance coverage and, and access to health care for millions of Americans, and it did do that. But now there's a backlash against it. As you say, a, a group of Republican state governors and attorneys general have litigation challenging um, the constitutionality of the Affordable Care Act. A trial judge in Texas has ruled that it's unconstitutional. Now, as a lawyer, that, that, that won't prevail in the end. It's a very weak legal argument. It's more of a political argument. So I think the Affordable Care Act will exist, but the administration is pulling it back the future is very, very uncertain um, for health care in the United States. You know, it's not just that. I mean, the United States you know, is also going through a, you know, a, a period where, you know, a reaction against immigration, for example. And I never thought I would hear, you know, a United States president go before the United Nations and say that, you know, globalism, the rule of law, human rights weren't primary. America has always been the voice for human rights around the world, and it's losing that uh, leadership role, and it makes me very, very sad to think about. Just one final thing on America. Can you ever foresee a situation where America might move to something like Canada, its northern neighbor, which effectively would be Medicare for all, which is being talked about now, and that might even be Democrat health policy in the next uh, national election in two years' time. Yes, I think it probably will be the Democrat uh, election strategy. You know, Medicare for all is indeed universal coverage. You know, I wish I could say I was optimistic on that, Richard. I'm, I'm not. I mean, I think the United States of all the OECD countries, it, it really doesn't even have a health system. It has so many different health systems. It, you know, it's, it's, it's got a single-payer health system like Canada uh, in the form of, of Medicare. It's got a national health service through the Veterans Administration. Um, it's got a multi-payer service through um, Medicaid, like Germany. So we've got all of it, but we... But Ultimately, it's all a hodgepodge of private insurance. I can see, you know, that improving um, with through through the Affordable Care Act and making it stronger. And I would love to see one day in my lifetime universal health coverage in the form of Medicare for all in the U.S. But it's just not part of American history. I'm not optimistic that it would get through Congress, even if it was a Democratic Congress. But one never knows. Um, one can live in hope and, 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 and optimism. Sure. No, no, thank you for that. Interesting perspective. Going back to the concept of, of human rights, I noticed 
When you were profiled by The Lancet three years ago, you talked about this sort of tension between individual human rights on the one hand and doing what's best for society on the other, because they're not always the same thing, are they? Can you just, no, can, you just can, can, you, can you just expand on that point? Because that's interesting. And I'm interested to know about also rights are all very well. And I'm aware of, we're talking about health and human rights, but there are rights in other spheres, as you know, gender rights, sexual equality, disability rights. Asking or demanding rights is one thing, but it doesn't mean you you, you get them or, or necessarily, they're, as you say, not, not necessarily the best thing for society. You look at public health, for example, you know, public health is about the idea of the common good. We don't focus on individuals, we focus on large populations. But sometimes in order to safeguard the health of a population, individual rights uh, tend to be infringed. Um, so one could think of many examples of that. So if somebody has you know, infectious disease and we want to isolate them or if they've been exposed to an infectious disease and we want to quarantine them. Their liberty is at stake, but we do so for the sake of the of the wider community. And, you know, and in so many of the battles in the United States and worldwide, you know, a lot of people um, say that, oh, things like a tax on uh, sugary um, beverages or or portion sizes like Michael Bloomberg tried to do in uh, New York City. Yeah, and look at look at the um, back look at the backlash to that. And I think you, I think you had a bit of hate mail, didn't you, at that time? I did. I had a lot of hate mail over that. It's funny because when I when I write in areas like abortion um, or, or in reproductive rights or, or about uh, 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 firearms control, I do get a lot of hate mail, but. The most I've ever gotten, unbelievably, is when I supported a limit on portion size. And, you know, I, I, I even got uh, death threats. And, you know, one thinks, really, you're going to threaten somebody's life because you need to buy two soft drinks rather than one. But people see these things as an assault on individual freedoms, um, even though you know, the, the common good is at stake. You know, I, I think particularly in the United States, but one can see it so many places where, you know, individual rights, you know, we keep saying, well, what, what rights do I have, you know, as a rights-bearing person? We need to, that's an important question, but a more important question I think now is, you know, what duties do we have one to another and what responsibilities do we have um, to have a healthy, safe um, environment and population where we can all live with well-being. And, you know, getting that balance right is, you know, the critical um, uh, point of discussion between civil liberties and, and human rights. You know, when I was in the UK, some of your listeners may remember I was General Secretary of Liberty. And so I've I've been on the public health side. I've been on the civil liberty side. There is a tension. Thank you. That that is fascinating, and a, and a great example of that, of course. And these are projects that the Lancet is closely involved in that we've featured recently in our journals online. The health impacts of climate change. Our recent countdown commission update from the Lancet, and early next year we'll be talking about diet and the way that obviously diet has an impact 
on the way that we uh, do our agriculture and the effects that has on, on planet sustainability. And these are all about, as you say, this tension between individual rights to do what one thinks one <laughs> is entitled to do and the, and the responsibilities of society at large. I just want to close with a couple of thoughts. Looking forward and, you know, hopefully with some optimism. You've touched on Dr. Tedros uh, and your work at World Health Organization, but also the follow-up to Alma Ata, uh, obviously another celebration this year, just a couple of months ago, was the 40th anniversary of Alma Ata. And the Lancet had a special issue for the Astana meeting, which was basically the follow-up, which was to kind of reinvigorate primary care and universal health coverage. It seemed to be a very positive way of actually picking up the mantle again, and particularly through the lens of, of primary health and, and, and this road to universal health coverage. That's got to be our, that's our destiny, surely, isn't it? Yes, I think it is. And, you know, the 2018 Astana Declaration, as you say, it renewed the human rights pledges from the Declaration of Alma-Ata, and it recommitted governments to, to primary health care as an essential step toward universal health coverage. And Dr. Tedros himself has said, you know, that all roads lead to universal health coverage, which is the best path to live up to WHO's constitutional commitment to the right to health. The UN Sustainable Goals, and particularly universal health coverage, but many more uh, aspects do give us um, room for uh, great optimism, including WHO's general program of work and, and and five-year strategy with its three billion objective, you know, one billion more people accessing universal health coverage, one billion more people protected from health emergencies, and one billion more people enjoying better health and well-being. And I think the future is bright. You know, human rights, we may think that it's under threat, and of course it is, but I have every reason to believe that we will have our plateaus, but this is an ever-upward trend where um, uh, human rights, the right to health in particular, is going to be uh, very strongly positioned throughout the rest of this century. I think on that very positive, optimistic note, we shall draw this discussion to a close. Larry, it's been wonderful having you on board for this holiday season podcast, the end of 2018 as we move into 2019. One thing to mention, you've, you've been so modest, Larry, that you haven't mentioned the fact you also have a book out <laughs> on this topic. And I think it's fair enough, as we've taken half an hour of your holiday time. Just tell us a little bit about the book. It is out, isn't it? It's published by Oxford University Press. Yes, yes. I've, I, no, I have a book out on um, human rights and global health governance, um, really uh, talking about the fact that you know, we're now at a stage where We've got to go beyond human rights as a value and really implement it. And the way we implement it is by national governments and by international institutions really governing for the right to health. You know, crucially important. You know, we we have to get beyond the idea that uh, human rights is an abstract thing um, to actually you know implement it with governments and and, and the United Nations really pushing very very strongly to make sure that every human being has the right to health. Professor Larry Gostin, many thanks indeed for talking to The Lancet. Season's greetings. Enjoy your time in the beautiful Lake District of England and very best wishes for 2019. What a privilege to be associated with The Lancet, uh, a journal I love dearly.